Well, we're going to begin a study on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, now, I'm not going to necessarily go verse by verse. Uh, that's, a, that's a big book, and we'd be here till uh, the Lord returns, which could be, you know, before the sermon is over, I guess, at that point. But uh, I do want, uh, I want us to, to, to walk through the book, and we're going to take some small sections and maybe some larger sections as well. But this morning, I, I want to lay a, a kind of a groundwork. I want to put a context, an Old Testament context to where Isaiah fits. So I'm going to ask you to strap up your seat belts, and we're going to do a, a 35,000 foot level overview of some of the Old Testament and try to understand where Isaiah fits in all of that. It's not that difficult. It's quite simple uh, to understand the breadth of the Bible. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but the Old Testament, the Bible begins with perfection. It begins with uh, what God had created and that everything He created was stamped with His divine stamp of approval. As it says in, um, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, having the same issues here from the first service, God saw that He had made what He had made, and behold, it was very good. God was delighted and pleased by the perfection of His creation. The Bible ends uh, with that same um, idea of the perfection. So in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 and 2, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible begins with perfection. The Bible ends with perfection. Now, in between is all the mess of this world. That's where all the wars are, and that's where all the, the, the senseless oppression, man's inhumanity against man, what we've seen this week, again lived out and played out in the news. All the mess of, and chaos and destruction of this world. It's all in between. It begins with perfection. It ends with perfection. We're living in this in-between time. Sorrows and sickness and disease and, and broken homes and, and brutalization and traumatized lives. Sin, death, chaos. It's a world of suffering because of the consequences of sin, of sin. Now, there's another story that runs throughout the pages of the Bible, this golden thread of, of truth from the perfection at the beginning throughout all the mess and, and chaos and sin and destruction of death until we reach the perfection at the end. This golden thread of truth that is woven throughout the pages of the Scripture is a story of how God is redeeming this sin-sick, fallen creation back into a right relationship with Himself. It's the redemptive story of how God is going to reassert His rightful, sovereign reign and rule over His fallen, rebellious creation once again. It's the story, the unfolding story of redemption, of God's work of grace. God is once again going to rule over a perfect world. 
He is going to put it all back together again. All, all the mess that we read about and see and experience in our life, God is going to put an end to it all. And as it says at the very last chapter in the Bible, in the book of Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. That's where we're headed. Now, this incredible story that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22, this incredible uh, golden strand of God's redeeming grace, centers around two crucial promises. If you can understand these two promises, you've got the Bible in your back pocket. You've got it figured out. I want to walk through a little bit what those two promises are. The first one is found in Genesis chapter 2. After God created the perfect world, he placed man in the midst of that perfection. But he said this, he commanded the man and he said, you are to, you are to uh, eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Death had never even been considered. God's creation was brimming with life. But God warned Adam that if you disobey me, you will die. He says, I promise you, <laughs> eat of the forbidden fruit and you're going to die. Creating a perfect world with this promise, rebel against me, it'll plunge everything into ruin and destruction. Well, as we know, Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit and true to his word, the promise of God kicked in. Death and destruction. The whole created order was turned upside down. We see, starting in Genesis chapter 3, the impact of sin, and God levels out these curses. Verse 14, to the serpent, he said, because you've done this, cursed are you more than the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, yet he will dominate and rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten from the tree which I've commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. From dust you have been made, to dust you will return. A created order brimming with life, now cursed because of sin. It was the promise of God. Eat the forbidden fruit, I'll promise you, death and destruction will reign, which is exactly what happened. Romans Chapter 8, the Apostle Paul picks up on this when he says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Pain, toil, creation enslaved to corruption. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Narnia series. 
You'll know that the white witch has put that spell over all of Narnia. She's cast it in perpetual winter. Spring does not come. And from Genesis 3 on to this very day, God's perfect creation is in winter. The stench of death hangs over it. Why? Because God promised that's what would happen. Every aspect of God's creation, from the tiniest subatomic particle to the largest of galaxies, all of creation is thrown into this, this futility, this subjugation to sin and chaos and death. Death reigns. As the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, it's all vanity, it's all futility. You can't make sense out of a, a world that is upside down in chaotic death. But God had promised, eat of it, I promise you, you'll die. Now there's a second promise of God, though, that is crucial to understand. The second promise is also in Genesis chapter 3. God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, of Satan. Perpetual warfare, spiritual warfare. But in that last little phrase, he uses a, a, a third-person masculine singular pronoun, he. By the way, the Word of God is inspired. Every word is inspired by God and is meaningful and is intended by God for its purpose. And he put a third-person masculine singular pronoun to give us hope. He. Somebody is going to come and become a, the head crusher to Satan to put an end to all the evil and death and destruction, to reverse the curse. This, this coming deliverer is being promised here. It's the what's called the, the, the very first um, prophetic scripture of, of the coming deliverer, of hope, of promise. He is going to come. A head crusher is going to be raised up, and God is going to reassert His sovereign, rightful rule over His fallen world once again when He comes. But who is this He? When will He come? When will the Deliverer come? Well, Eve thought it was like real soon because chapter 4, verse 1 said Adam had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord, is what it says literally. I have gotten a, a third person, a ma masculine singular pronoun, he, the Lord. His name was Cain. Of course, you know the story. Cain was not the deliverer. He was not the head crusher. Cain was a murderer, and he kills his brother Abel. You keep reading through the book of Genesis, and in chapter 4 and verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife Eve again, and she gave birth to another son, and she named him Seth. And he, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And 
to Seth, he himself had a son, and his name was Enosh. And then there's a little phrase at the end of verse 26 of Genesis 4 that says, and then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's a, a note of hope, of triumph. Seth is, is born and, and has a son, and then people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. There's hope. It's like, is this the deliverer? Has God sent the head crusher? Things are turning around. Well, we keep reading and we realize, no, it's not. In fact, things go from bad to worse. And you come to Genesis chapter 6, and God looks at mankind. He says, why did I even make them? I, 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 don't, I wish I had never made them. Sin, chaos, destruction. And so God brings the flood, wipes out humanity, except for one, one man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? And he had his family, and they were saved through the flood in the ark. Was Noah the deliverer? Was Noah the coming head crusher? Well, no. When we keep working through the book of Genesis, we see Noah was a sinner, just like all who followed him. And yet he had three sons, and one of those sons was the name, was a son by the name of Shem. There's hope because Shem was different than the other two sons. Is he the coming deliverer? Is God working this plan out? from the seed of the woman, through Seth and Noah, and now Shem? Well, we keep reading and realize, no, it doesn't end with Shem. In fact, God promises that there's someone else who's going to come. And indeed, when we come to Genesis chapter 12, everything in the, the writing of the book of Genesis comes to a, a, a screeching halt. The first 11 chapters cover vast amounts of time, we come to Genesis chapter 12, and it's like everything slows in the slow motion time, and the spotlight is focused on one man, Abraham. Is he the deliverer? Is he the coming one? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord God, and this is, a, um, this is after taking Abraham, who was a worshiper of the moon god, he was a pagan worshiper in the land of Ur, the Chaldees. And it says in chapter 12, verse 1, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then the very last phrase, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has a plan. He has a plan to reassert his righteous, rightful, sovereign rule over this sinful, rebellious creation. Once again, he's going to reassert his glory. And he says, I'm going to do it through you, Abraham, but not you personally, but from you is going to come a great nation. I'm going to use that great nation. And through that great nation, a coming one, a special seed will come. It's not the, the seed of the woman and, and, and Seth. It, it was not Noah. It was not Shem. It's not Abraham. But someone is yet to come. And as we keep reading in Genesis, Abraham had a son, a promised son in his old age, miraculous son born, Isaac. Isaac wasn't the deliverer. 
Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, was he the deliverer? Well, we find out that Jacob was really nothing more than a cheat and a, a thief. He stole the birthright from his brother Esau. He's not the deliverer. And as the book of Genesis continues, Jacob has 12 sons. Surely one of these sons can be the third-person masculine singular pronoun, he. Well, you read through the book of Genesis, and it reads like a who's who and debauchery. But there's one son that stands out, and Jacob, before he dies, blesses that son. His name is Judah. And in Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh comes. And if you have an NIV translation, NIV translates that Shiloh as the one to whom it belongs is coming. And he shall be the obedience of the peoples. A promised deliverer was still going to come. God's plan was being unfolded. And we end the, the book of Genesis with this, again, note of hope. The scepter won't depart from Judah. The head crusher will still come. But who is he? He's a human being because he's born of a woman, the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Seth and Noah and Shem. And through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, the book of Genesis ends, and then there's like 400 years where nothing is said. 400 years of silence from God. And then you turn the page and you come to the book of Exodus, and there's a great deliverer who's raised up, Moses, right? The story of Moses. Is he the deliverer? Is he the, the head crusher, the one who's promised to come? make everything right through whom God is going to use to, to reassert his righteous rule. Moses delivered this family of Jacob who for 400 years had been now slaves in Egypt. They've turned into millions strong, but they're a ragtag bunch of slaves, right, in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. But Moses leads them out of slavery. Is he the promised head crusher? Amazingly, this ragtag bunch of slaves is going to center, uh, play a, a central role in the unfolding of God's plan to bring this deliverer. This group of insignificant slaves God raised up for a particular purpose. God reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God had a plan with this special people. And through this nation, Israel, he was going to bring about his righteous rule once again. How was he going to do that? Well, through Moses, God communicated three crucial tools or means by which God was going to reassert his righteous rule on the, on the world once again and bring about the deliverer. Three cru crucial tools. There was the law, there was the tabernacle, and there was the priesthood. 
The law provided the standard of righteousness. This is my character. This is how you are to live as my chosen people, through whom my righteous rule will reign again on this earth. The tabernacle was the place of God's throne. The center of the tabernacle was what was called the Holy of Holies. And it was the throne room of God, the Ark of the Covenant. God dwelt there and met the people there. Later it was the temple. And of course the priesthood was the, the conduit through whom God was going to mediate His purposes and His plans to this special people. The law, the tabernacle, the priesthood. God had set up a theocracy where He was in charge, He was ruling, and it, these people under the leadership of Moses, was to reassert his righteous rule on the earth once again. God said, I, I just have one little qualification. You have to obey me. I'm in charge. I'm the king. This is a theocracy. You must obey me. Many times here at Fellowship, as we've studied these things, I've mentioned <clears throat> the key passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, that if you understand Deuteronomy 28, you got the whole Old Testament down. Because Deuteronomy 28 begins with these words, Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and shall overtake you. And then there's this whole list. You will be blessed, blessed, blessed. You will be blessed, you will be blessed, you will be. And this all, all through those verses, here is the blessings if you obey me. But you come to verse 15, and God says, but it shall come about that if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I charge you today. All these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then He lists all these curses. Cursed you will be. Curse, 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 curse. Blessing and curse. God will either reassert His sovereign righteous rule over His creation through these people, or He will curse them in their disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 30 there's another reiteration of this in verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk in His ways, keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, so that you can live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but you're drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. He says in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life and live. It was all mapped out. It was, it was all set. A the theocratic state, God reigning there in the midst of the people in the tabernacle with the priesthood mediating, with the law given, this is my direction, this is my guidebook, with a, a ragtag group of slaves that have been raised up now to be the, the conduit of blessing and reassertion of God's righteous sovereign rule and make it all right again through whom the deliverer and the head crusher will come. And of course we know the history of the Old Testament, don't we? 
time and time and time again, they disobeyed. Sin and rebellion were found in the very ones who were to, who were de, who were to declare the glory of God and reassert his righteous reign over the world once again. It's a story of failure time and time again. And yet, amazingly, God continues to weave that golden thread of promise in the midst of the darkness. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to King David, the man after his own heart. And to King David, he says, Therefore, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have, have cut out all your enemies from before you, and I will make a gr you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Oh, is, is David? Is he the promised deliverer? I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Is God going to reassert his, his theocratic rule and reign again and establish his righteousness on this fallen, miserable planet? But when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, oh, so it's not David. I'm going to raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He goes on and he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. A, a promise in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of rebellion and sin, God speaks the promise to David. A coming deliverer is going to be there. God is going to raise up somebody. He's going to reestablish his rightful reign again. But we keep reading, and there continues to be sin and rebellion. There continues to be almost hopelessness. David dies. His son Solomon, great hope in Solomon. And then, and then Solomon turns his heart against the Lord. He dies. His son Rehoboam ascends to the throne, and it goes from bad to worse because very shortly this national entity, this, this nation of Israel that God was going to raise up to bless the entire world as he had promised with Abraham, through you, through your seed, I'm going to raise up a great nation, and the world will be blessed, but they break out into a civil war. The, the ten northern tribes called Israel, they, they separate. And the two north, southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, there's, there's this warfare and this separation and, and this heartache. It's like, wh where's God's plan? Where, where's this thing going? There are 19 kings in the northern kingdom. 19 kings that rule that northern kingdom of Israel, and not one of them walks with God. They serve other gods. They're despicable. They oppress people. It's like they hate Jehovah God. You come to the 8th century B.C., 
800 years before the time of Christ. You come to that 8th century, it's, it's got to be the low water mark of, of God's plan for the ages. The people of Israel, the special people, raised up are destroyed. Assyrian hordes come from the north. Brutal, murderous regime. And they take that nation of Israel, those ten northern tribes, destroy them. It's what the prophets had said would happen. It's exactly what God says. Look, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow, there, there will be cursing. And in Second Chronicles chapter 36, the writer says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had, he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people and there was no, until there was no remedy. And Assyria came and Israel is no more. In 722 B.C., the 8th century was the century of darkness. Oh, there were still the southern two tribes of Judah, the little kingdom of Judah. They were holding on by a thread, and, but soon they too would go the way of their family to the north. Darkness emptiness, destruction. It would appear in that 8th century B.C. that God had pulled another Genesis 6. I've had it. There is no remedy. Forget about the deliverer. Forget about the head crusher. I take it all back, my promise of Genesis 3. I've had it. I've had it. God's program of redeeming this fallen creation back to himself had slammed into a brick wall in the 8th century B.C. It would appear that sin and Satan had won, that the powers of darkness were the victors. Or were they? Into that darkened void of the 8th century, into these troubled times, a voice was heard, a voice, a prophetic voice, a prophetic voice that just would not shut up, that could not be silenced. For almost 60 years, six decades, that voice was heard over and over and over again. It was a prophetic voice that communicated words of judgment against sin, of God's righteous and holiness. But there were also prophetic words that picked up and continued that golden thread that was being woven throughout the pages of Scripture. Fear not. Take comfort. The deliverer is going to come. The head crusher will show up. That voice who spoke for almost 60 years was the great prophet Isaiah. 
It is well argued that Isaiah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Not only did he prophesy for almost six decades, he prophesied such rich, such staggering amount of material about the character of God, about this coming deliverer. He gives details of this head crusher, this, this he that had been promised. He gives rich details. He gives hope. He gives comfort in the darkness of the times. No prophet unveiled truth about Jehovah God like Isaiah did, and no prophet revealed truth about the coming deliverer like Isaiah did. Theologians have called this prophetic book of Isaiah the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Isaiah. In fact, I would say he's the first gospel. The gospel accounts in the New Testament share the life of Christ. That's exactly what Isaiah does. Rich, rich information about the coming deliverer. No prophet spoke revealed truth like Isaiah did. I want you to just notice something interesting about the Bible and about the book of Isaiah. You know the Bible has 66 books in it, and it's divided into two sections. You have the Old Testament with 39 books, and you've got the New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. The Old Testament has the emphasis on law and judgment. This is my law. Obey it, you live. Disobey it, you're cursed. And over and over and over again, there's judgment. The New Testament has its focus on grace. Now, look at the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah also has 66 chapters in it. It's divided into two major sections as well. The first section is 39 chapters long. The second section is 27 chapters long. The first section, verse, chapters 1 through 39, focus on judgment because of the violation of the law. But the last 27 chapters focuses on grace, on what God has provided. These last 27 chapters of Isaiah really reflect the New Testament from beginning to end. The first chapter uh, in that last section, chapter 40, begins with a prophecy of a coming one who's going to proclaim the presence of the coming deliverer, like the New Testament of John the Baptist. It ends in chapter 20, 66 with this new heaven and new earth, this, this reclaimed creation of God, just like the book of Revelation does. That last section, the 27 chapters, let me just break that up just a little bit more because it can be divided into three sections of nine chapters each. Chapters 40 to 48 emphasizes God the Father. Chapters 49 through 57, God the Son. 58 through 66, the Holy Spirit plays the prominent role. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The richness of the book of Isaiah cannot be overstated. The rich theology about who God is and about God's plan for, the, for His created world 
And God's coming deliverer is so rich and so deep and magnificent. Merrill Unger, a theologian and author, put it this way, Isaiah is the greatest messianic prophet and prince of Old Testament seers. For splendor of diction and brilliance of imagery, versatility and beauty of style, profundity and breadth of prophetic vision, he is without equal. That's the book we're about to study. And he wrote in the most darkest of times of Israel's history. I'll continue next week with this introduction and, and fill in some gaps about who this man Isaiah really was. But folks, unless you're living with your head in the sand, the 21st century isn't going so well either. We're living in dark times, and the news once again this week shouts to us of the darkness of the time. But there's good news. 2,800 years ago, a prophet by the name of Isaiah recorded it. There is a sovereign Lord, the creator of all, who cannot be thwarted by sin and destruction and chaos. He has a plan, a glorious promise being lived out to the pages of the Old Testament and down to our very time. He's going to reassert his righteous rule once again on this earth. He's going to bring an end to sin and death and the curse. He's going to vanquish his foes. He's going to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And he's going to reign supreme just as he has intended from the beginning of time. And if you ever needed encouragement and hope, Isaiah will give it to you in spades. It's a glorious book. There's so much wonderful, even tidbits of truth that it's going to be hard not to keep moving through it at a pace that we need to. But I want to encourage you to begin reading the book for yourself. Just, just read it as much as you can. You see, there's hope. In fact, Isaiah's very name means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is our deliverer. The Lord is the head crusher who will vanquish the foes of darkness. The Lord is the deliverer. He is our salvation. And Isaiah's going to just open up the truth of who this great Savior is. Isaiah will teach any person who's wise enough to come before these holy scriptures and say, Lord, teach me. Show me yourself. Because I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death someday. I have personally, you have already, 
and this world isn't over, your life isn't over. And there will be many times of the valleys of the shadow of death, like Sam and Faith experienced. But the Lord is our salvation, and the Deliverer is coming, and God's plan will be fulfilled. And an old prophet 2,800 years ago will remind us of that week after week as we come and study him. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would direct our time and, and, and teach us your truth about yourself and your plan of the ages. Encourage our hearts, comfort us, Help us to always be reminded that you, Lord, you are our salvation. You are our hope. You will one day reassert your sovereign, rightful reign and rule. And the enemies of darkness will be vanquished. And the great deliverer, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, will reign supreme. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.